Good morning. Um, thank you very much for coming. I know you had a nice dinner yesterday and it's still Saturday morning, so I really appreciate it. Um, this um, presentation is rather different to the one to just listen to. Uh, it's about architecture, it's about memory, commemoration, and how to make it a bit more vivid, how to engage better with, with commemoration. Um, so you will see several um, pictures, mostly about Berlin, like uh, this one is, is just one of the examples of how architecture or the built environment traces monuments can actually help us to remember. Now the question is whether they are actually useful uh, by doing that or not. So the two main case studies that I have selected for this presentation are the Autobite Workshop for the Blind, which is a very, very small museum. It's um, talking about a very specific episode that happened in the Holocaust, uh, or the Third Reich and the, and the Holocaust, um, against, uh, in terms of comparison, uh, to the Jewish Museum in Berlin, which was built as a purpose-built uh, museum by Daniel Livskin. Uh, using a very phenomenological design, so trying to force us to feel something, uh, but it's not an authentic site as such. So my main question remains related to authenticity, to what extent authenticity, the, the originality of a place, or of, an, of an episode, or a, or a story, artifacts, can help us to engage better to a particular episode um, through the context, knowing the context or the, um, and the prosthetic memory and whether the design elements can actually help to, to promote this, this engagement. According to Johanny Palasma, who is uh, one of the most important um, architectural historians of this or last um, century, uh, buildings and cities are instruments and museums of time. They enable us to see and understand the passing of history. So that's a very good quote. And uh, for instance, with this uh, particular example, the documentation center in Nuremberg, um, recently refurbished by Gunther Dominic, that could work because you go there and this is the former uh, space of the Nazi party rallies in Nuremberg and it's a massive space, um, it's, it's really monumental. Um, for a period of time after the war, they didn't know what to do with this space, they tried to demolish it several times but then it was too expensive <coughs> to the point that a new law or about monuments arrived and it was not possible to demolish it anymore so they had to keep it um, and they came up with this idea of using it as uh, an instrument as a museum of history of time and they have the documentation center just explaining the rise of, of Hitler and Nazism. But in these other three examples, uh, they are related to particular episodes and they are in authentic sites, but their remains are not necessarily authentic as such. They are not original. So if you go to Berlin, um, you may notice that the, the traces of the wall are there all the time. And I say, you may notice, because one of my students went there and, they, and she said, oh, it was incredible. There is lots of old stuff and lots of new stuff. Uh, but she never realized that there was an East and West for some reason. Um, <coughs> so if you see this trace, the reality is that this is just made up. It's not clear to know whether this is the inner wall, the external wall, the in-between wall. It's just a trace just for you to remember, uh, because perhaps it's better just to have a trace rather than the wall everywhere, because that, that was the point, to, to get it, uh, rid of it. The second one is the Bebelplatz book, Barney Memorial, by Micha Ullmann in the Bebelplatz uh, in, in Berlin. And again, this is very abstract monument. It's very simple, very humble. You can only see it if you actually walk on it. Um, the problem is that even though I, I believe it's very, very powerful, 
is not very specific of this particular episode. So if you don't know the context, I find it very hard to believe that anybody would make that connection to, or perhaps if you have seen uh, The Last Crusade with Indiana Jones, you can make that connection. But I find it hard enough unless you find the plague, which is actually a few meters away. The third one is the Stumbling Stones, uh, which is a, a huge project that is uh, going around uh, for the last few years, still ongoing by Demnick. He has a, a big workshop and they are creating these stones and they are all over Germany and other um, uh, countries that were affected by the Second World War. And they specifically, uh, they are telling you about a specific person. Uh, this is the last address where they were seen and this is where they were deported or uh, they were killed of whatever happened to them. So it's a very, very specific episode which is authentic and the site is authentic but the remains that we see, they are not necessarily authentic. Now, for, for my presentation and for understanding the analysis of these two museums, prosthetic memory is a very, very uh, important element. Um, because I believe that if you don't have a connection, a personal connection with an event, it's, it's rather difficult to engage. i just leave you a moment so you can read it. So, for instance, in, in, the, in the last few years, many people were very critical of people engaging with the Holocaust uh, through Schindler's List, for instance, and saying, well, this is not real history, this is just a film. But however, in my, it's my opinion, uh, personal opinion, that whatever it takes for people to remember, I think that's good enough, because we cannot just remember everything that happened. So anything that helps you to, to make that connection, I think that's, that's good enough and fair enough. Now, is authenticity a significant element in the design of centers of memory? That's the main question. And does it actually encourage a better understanding of history? This is the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. And many of you may know that it's, it's really huge. It was very, very controversial. But nowadays, it has become a bit of a public space, because it actually is a public space. It's an open space. You can go there anytime you want, even though there are some rules of conduct that you have to follow. For instance, you cannot be bathing in a um, bikini and you shouldn't be doing barbecues, which is a bit bizarre, but it's written in several places of, of the uh, memorial. And of course, you shouldn't be jumping from one stele to the next, but many people do it. Apparently, someone has died actually as a consequence, just hitting uh, in the back of the head. So it's actually a dangerous thing to do. However, people do it. Um, the last time I went, people were uh, playing hide-and-seek and then whistling around. So it made me think to what extent we actually have to remember in, in a grieving way, or we can actually enjoy these places of memory. In Argentina, one of the biggest parks of memory is actually just a park where people go and do picnics and think about the disappeared. So it's, again, very difficult to understand. It's, it's all about perception. <coughs> it's a very subjective um, um, topic. So the first um, example is the Autovite work Workshop for the Blind, uh, which is attached to the Silent Heroes Memorial. Um, it is open since 1999, even though it has gone through different uh, moments in, in, in its museum, in the museum. The last refurbishment was done by Dorothy Hawk in 2004. So as you can see from the map, I'm sorry, I, I never sit down, so I find it a bit <laughs> strange. Um, but this is the Museum Island. Many of you may know it. And uh, this is actually somewhere here. This is where the museum is. So it's rather in the middle of the city. This is still Mitte. This is Alexanderplatz, so the new center for, for the East. Uh, all of this was East, of, of course. And um, 
it was a place, uh, it was a small, very small factory. Uh, they were doing mainly um, brooms. Um, where this autovite, this uh, German gentleman, was hiding especially blind people, and they were actually Jews at the same time, uh, both things. Um, what is important about it is that because of the problems of the inheritance after the Second World War, they, they couldn't touch the building because it was not clear who the owner of the building was. So until 1998, I think, someone found the place, some students, and they started to understand what was going on with this building, and they kept it and opened it as an exhibition just telling the story of this silent hero. We all know about Schindler, uh, but actually there are quite a few. So in terms of location, Mitte, very much in the, in the city centre, scale very small, and it's quite hidden, I'll show you in a minute, but it is an authentic site, so that's the relevance of, of the space. Um, and because of the authenticity, the originality of the place, the prosthetic memory is very, very strong and it's also informative, so you can understand the context and empathize very easily with it. So this is um, the neighborhood where it is and it's very, very vibrant, there are lots of coffee shops and this is exactly behind the tram where, where the museum is located. But if you look at the signposting, there is nothing related to Autobite. It's not acknowledged, it's only the old synagogues. And even last year when there was a huge exhibition, which was a year-long exhibition in Berlin about the diversity destroyed, there was some acknowledgement in these um, urban memorials about Autobite and Anna Frank, which is in the same courtyard. However, it was not a specific word. This was, there was no map around just telling you, just go ahead, this is just next door. <coughs> so this is on the street, this is number 39. But it's so, such a strange space with lots of posters that it's difficult to actually realize that this is the Autobahn Museum, this is the Silent Heroes Memorial, and there you have the Anna Franks uh, Museum. So it's, you really have to know what it is in order to find it. I have sent several of my students who hated me because they just couldn't find it. It's really <laughs> hard to find. And this is the courtyard, and again, you would never think that a museum is actually there. It's not very traditional in that sense. Um, what is very important about this museum, and the reason why it um, opened only so late, is because the narrative that is portrayed is the Germans are not all buddies. They were actually silent heroes. They were people who wanted to help. Of course, in Berlin specifically, um, and other parts of uh, Germany as well, the Germans just took the, yes, we were the perpetrators, yes, we have the buddies, mea culpa and everything else. So most of the monuments are talking about the Jews mostly. Uh, there are new monuments for the Sinti and Roma and the homosexuals, but mostly is about the Jews and the Germans as the, as the perpetrators. But this new narrative is very difficult to sell. So to me, the fact that it's hidden, that it's small, that is not usually in, in guides about Berlin, um, that is also talking about we s we're not so ready to show that we're, we were victims and we actually wanted to help some of us. So once you are inside, there is a transition from a very um, kind of museum look, very uh, clean, very bright, very white, very organized, a few uh, elements from the, from the workshop. So this is where they were doing the, the rooms and brushes and a few pictures to start engaging with Autovite. And as you go on, and it's an L-shaped museum, very, very small, as I said, the color 
the, the interior design starts to change. So they, they want to go to gear towards the authenticity of the space. So you can see how instead of being just white and clinical, it starts to have a bit of color, which reminds you of the original color, the, authentic, uh, the authenticity of the site, very bare in terms of decoration. Again, towards the, the climax of the exhibition, you see all these different pictures of the blind youth that used to work in this workshop, which um, um, Autobite actually tried to help. And for that reason, he had this um, uh, hidden or hideout space behind this uh, cloakroom. Um, sorry, this um, closet. Closet, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just destroyed the climax of the story, sorry. <laughs> um, so <coughs> this is where he tried to keep um, the use and you only see the void, the emptiness. So it's very, very powerful when you actually have to turn because you cannot open it, it's just a, um, a little wall. And when you just put your, your head around, you cannot go into this place, making it almost sacred with that light. It's just a void, it's just an emptiness. There is nothing left. Um, and it could be something positive with the light, very sacred space, or it could be actually the emptiness because he was not very successful. He tried many times, but that doesn't mean that he was always successful. Next door, you have the Silent Heroes Memorial, um, interior designed by the same architect. Um, and again, very clinical explanation of many of the Silent Heroes that they have found so far. One, of course, related to Schindler's list, and then as it's becoming very, very common, lots and lots and lots of names because it's important not to have numbers, but to have individuals to, to know their names. Now, completely different approach. The Jewish Museum in Berlin was um, built um, by Daniel Lipskin in 2000, opened in 2001, but it took a, a good 10 years to have it done. What is very interesting is that for a couple of years before the exhibition was actually ready, it was opened as just an empty space. And it was very, very popular and everybody was engaging with that space because it, phenomenologically it's very, very strong. So again, it's very close to Mitte, but not necessarily in the city center. You see Kreuzberg and somewhere around here. It's now becoming a very interesting place because during the, the Second World War, it was encapsulated by the wall and it, it ran down a bit, but uh, that's the reason why immigrants, students with not a lot of money were going there. But now it's, it's, it's picking up and, and getting very, uh, quite a, a bit of a cultural center. Um, part of the museum is um, a, a baroque building, the former Court of Justice. And it was supposed to be an extension to the Berlin Museum, which was um, uh, there. Uh, since 1960s. However, the project overwhelmed the, the extension and it became a museum on, on its own. So it's really imposing in terms of size and material. However, it's not an authentic, uh, an authentic site. Uh, it's not related to a particular episode that actually took place there. And however, the prosthetic memory again is very strong for different reasons. As I will show you um, with these pictures. So. The narrative here, in principle, was started as let's show what Berlin was with the Jews and then without the Jews, so showing that void. <coughs> the idea is to integrate this memory of the Holocaust in the, me in the memory of Berlin, so that was part of the history of Berlin. And in order to do that, um, that will help to, to complete the void 
uh, and be able to create a, a European human future. That's what uh, Lipskin explains uh, what the project is about. Now, as you can see from the plan, um, shown how it completely overwhelmed the, the old building, which is here. The old bu building has become the services. So this is where you pay your ticket entrance, security, uh, the wardrobe, again, the clock room. Um, you have toilets, the cafeteria, everything else. And the real uh, exhibition just takes place here. So you go in here, and then you have to go downstairs and you start from the basement, actually, into the new building. As you can see, the plan is quite in zigzag, and that's one of the main features that this museum has. The layout of the museum is very difficult to follow. Uh, you are used to go linearly, just walking ahead, um, but so many uh, times you will find that it's very difficult to, to follow, to know where, where you're supposed to go. So. This is the external appearance of um, the museum. As you can see, also the windows are very, very strong in the design. The second, the middle one is the, um, the Garden of Exile and Immigration, which depends on when you go. You will see lots of flowers, vegetation, very green, or very dry, uh, sad um, in, in, in winter. And the last one is the Tower of the Holocaust, which on the outside just looks like a big silo, but in the inside is one of the main most important feature. So you go in, um, this is still the Baroque place, and you go down that stairs, and you find, again, very difficult to, to approach, where should I go? And you, you have to take the initiative and go to the right, to the left. Uh, you don't know exactly where this is uh, taking you. Um, the, um, the floors are not straight either, uh, the ceilings either, so the, it, it's creating a very forced perspective moving you towards the Garden of Exile, for instance. This is one of the examples of the exhibition, which I've been there four or five times and I just can't see the exhibition. I just go and walk around the exhibition. It becomes like a completely different parallel narrative. So it's, it's very bizarre. Um, so as you can see, this is the exit towards the Garden of Exile. And again, all these piles are, are not uh, completely straight and it's creating this sense of disorientation. Um, and if it works with the future and technology, um, this is the, the Holocaust tower, tower. And I don't, it's not mine. Uh, I found it in YouTube. But it shows um, how you feel inside. Uh, no. Okay. So basically, this is, as I uh, showed you, the, the external appearance is like a very, very uh, high silo. Um, and there is only that little bit of light. So it's really, you feel terrible, there is no light, there is no space, and the door makes such a strong noise when you close it that it's a bit scary. And again, all these lines, um, staircase that lead nowhere, which I always thought it was very dramatic until I saw these guys just having a rest, which I guess makes sense because it's not going anywhere, so you don't disturb anybody. Um, again, those sharp angles, the windows, this idea of you are seeing the building from the inside, so it's, it's very confusing where you are, uh, to the point that you need to put all these arrows on the floor, so otherwise people get lost. 
Uh, this is a very, very strong, um, hopefully, this is mine, hopefully this works. I think it's worth just even a few seconds give you that, that horrible um, experience of walking on top of these uh, faces which obviously represent the victims of the Holocaust and you are walking on it and you're making such a noise that you know in a museum you shouldn't be doing and on top of that you know it's, it's wrong to be walking on these faces and at the same time you're trying not to fall this all these ideas is very 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 strong um, and it works very well you know in terms of uh, phenomenology as, as we were explaining so in terms of narrative location and scale when we compare them I think one of the most important elements is the narrative behind is completely two different narratives there are a few silent heroes, there are lots of victims, so it's a different uh, element, and the way it is publicized is also diff different. Autobite, for instance, is free, the Jewish Museum is eight or nine euros, and is apparently number five, uh, the most popular, one of the most popular museums in Berlin. Um, in terms of the spatial narrative, again, Autobite is very clear, it's a very small space, there is no way you can get lost, you go straight into the climax and then you just walk back and reflect in it. Uh, whilst in the Jewish Museum, the whole construction is forcing you to feel something for all these design features, uh, but especially with the Holocaust Tower, the Garden of Exile and the Void of Memory, but all across the, the idea of disorientation to make you feel you know, unhappy most of the time. Um, in terms of interior design, Autobite starts clean, modern, and it gears toward um, showing the authenticity of the place. Authenticity becomes very, very important. Whilst the Jewish Museum, um, the colors <coughs> are the same all over the place. It's the light that makes a difference. It could be very dark, it could be very light. Um, so it's related to the windows and especially the artificial light. Very sharp angles and circulation, false perspectives, and this idea of silence and noise, that this is very troubling as well. Um, so what is my conclusion? Um, I still don't have one, and I should have said it from the beginning. This is just a work in progress that always works. Um, but to me, the narrative has a lot to do in these uh, particular cases. Um, I'm not sure to what extent the design actually can overtake the importance of the context. I think you need to know what you are looking at, otherwise you cannot really engage. And, and you know, going back to the to the um, um, monument in Bevelplatz is very, you know, special monument, very nice and everything. But if you don't know that it's these empty shelves are represented, uh, representing that there are no more books because of the the burning books uh, during the Third Reich, it's very difficult to understand the connection. So to me, uh, this empathy is only possible when we know the context, when there is a prosthetic memory that, uh, that is uh, actually backing up these feelings. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.